Hey there, welcome to the Deep Dive Lab. Each episode, we'll sit down with experts and thought leaders to get a glimpse into their world. We'll take you on a journey behind the scenes to explore all the different industries from tech to business, healthcare, and design. I'm your host, Jacintha Kurniawan. This week, we have an exciting guest. We have Rachel Barker. She has over a decade of leadership experience in digital health strategy, product management, and project delivery across private sectors, public sector, government, startup, and consulting. She's also currently a senior manager of the Provincial eHealth Projects Department at the Provincial Health Service Authority in British Columbia. She's also the president of the British Columbia chapter of the Healthcare Information and Management System Society, which is a non-profit committed to reforming the global health ecosystem through the power of information and technology, and has also previously led the Vancouver chapters of Hacking Health and Healthcare Experience Design. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us here on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here Yeah, about digital health. Exactly. Well, I mean, we initially met when we both were competing as a team together as a case competition going through CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency. It was really exciting. But the one thing I remembered was this girl is a machine. You were a machine. You were like the research guru, anything that we wanted, information. You were just the girl for that. And you're so passionate about what you do. I immediately knew I wanted to have you on the show. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I am a huge nerd for lots of things, <laughs> but very specifically, I'm lucky that I've wound up in a career that so closely reflects something that I'm very passionate about. Uh, mm. I'm often off reading articles or seeing what's come out or chatting with people about the interesting projects they're working on. And I, I really love sharing that information. So I'm pretty stoked to be here. Yeah, that's perfect. Let's go into your passion a little bit. What drew you to healthcare? What's funny is actually, I didn't have that background. I tripped and fell into it. So Mm -hmm. I didn't have a traditional educational journey as well. So I got out of high school, worked for a couple of years in retail management, took a minute to realize I didn't want to do retail management forever. And I was really passionate about working with technology specifically. So I went to community college. I was in the US at the time in California, got my associate's degree in computer information science and wound up working actually at the college I graduated from in educational technology. So it was the same thing. We were translating between the computer science department and like the English professors on how they could best use technology to enable their lesson plans. And we were helping students, coaching them and literally teaching classes and helping people find their aha moment and really understand how technology could enable better outcomes for them, could change their lives and really spark their passion. And when I moved to Canada... Uh, it was on an open work permit. I actually couldn't find anything in ed tech. And I found this healthcare role as a systems analyst at a digital health company. And I was like, I feel like that could probably bring the same joy and have the same impact. And I loved it. So as soon as I went down that rabbit hole, like I never came out. And I've been doing it for 14 years. Wow. Um, and I still feel like often I'm barely scratching the surface. Oh my God. I'm sure like we're going to go really in depth and in health and there's so much to really explore here, which I think is a great segue to just immediately start off with healthcare, or at least in your own words, what is digital health? So there's a lot of bickering, I'm going to say in the academic community around the terminology used, but I think for the purposes of this podcast, we can say 
digital health is using technology to enable healthcare delivery and better patient outcomes. So you're going to hear lots of things like digital health, health IT. We're just going to talk about how technology is used for positive impact to patients, to providers, to the health system. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some the themes sometimes mm-hmm. in the hands of consumers, sometimes even enabling things like workflow, but lots of places that can fit in and make things better. Yeah. I was going to ask you, like, what are some examples that you could share? So I think we can even go a bit into medical devices. So there's anything from if you go into a hospital, obviously you have tons of medical devices everywhere. You have MRI machines, you have monitors, you have take-home devices, you have glucose monitors for diabetics, um, and the whole world, it's a whole separate sub-industry. And then where I'm traditionally on, I've dabbled a bit in that with remote patient monitoring, but Mm -hmm. is the software side of things. So I've worked quite heavily in electronic medical records. So for instance, when people go to see their doctor and their doctor is typing away on the screen about their health record and what findings they had, that system is or should be enabling that physician to do things like prescribe them drugs and have the pharmacist get that right away, as opposed to sending a fax over, sending referrals to other physicians, and then helping enable making that workflow faster and more efficient to help people get access to the care they need quicker. There are all sorts of back-end systems around controlling those pieces. So when you see your doctor typing away on the screen, there's probably like 50 different systems that are all interconnected to that ecosystem, trying to make sure that communication and data gets through to where it needs to be so that other physicians and other pieces of the health system can see you quickly for care and can actually make the best choices for your care through things like clinical decision support. And now you're starting to see more things like AI and machine learning used in those as well. And then you have Mm. even the process side of things where, you know, health insurance companies are really starting to see more of a presence in digital health and pharmaceutical as well, because it can help them enable better outcomes and save them money on the people that they're insuring or on how their drugs are used. Mm -hmm. There's so much to unpack there even. So Is a centralized system for data common in healthcare systems? Oh, no, we're terrible at that. We're so (laughs) bad at it. So interoperability, and that just means how the systems talk to each other and share data with each other. I'm going to talk specifically about Canada because other jurisdictions have done quite a bit better. I remember working with uh, Australia and New Zealand back like well over a decade ago, and they had in New Zealand, e-referrals, which is when instead of faxing over, you could just type into your software system and it would just pop up in the receiving system and all the data would be in there and the receiving Mm -hmm. system could do things like assign priority and alert the doctor and all that good stuff. They had that over a decade ago. We're literally working on that project like today in BC. So we've had iterations of it over 10 plus years, but we're still getting there. Every province in Canada says this is a huge priority, is interoperability, getting their systems to talk together. Everybody really wants it, and everybody's been chipping away at it for ever, basically, for longer than I've been in this. But we are really starting to see some significant pushes and progress towards that, which is great. So the consequences of not having interoperability are hearing stories from patients like they can't get their medical record when they switch doctors or they get it in this huge printout and the new doctors, what do you want me to do with this? I can't, Mm -hmm. it's not in here. It's not going to work for my prescription interactions for you. I can't tell. I have to manually review that now. 
more stories where somebody is getting treatment and they're bouncing through a lot of different specialists and the different specialists that they see do not have access to their medical records that they have in other specialists. So they're missing information that they need to make the best decisions about their care. And people have to do things, for example, I've heard a number of stories where people have had to go get a lab result that they've already had, um, sometimes several times because the new doctor they've seen did not have access to that lab result. And they're sick and they're exhausted. And often sometimes there's economic barriers to them taking this time off work. And yet they have to go drag themselves to another lab appointment to get the same test over again because that doctor can't access it. So it's solving Mm -hmm. those sorts of problems for people. Why is this still a challenge now? Because this is something that I see all the time. Like my friends in Vancouver move to Toronto and you you, you can't even have that information brought here. But you would assume that on a digital world that we live in, it would already be automatic. Why is this a problem that is still happening now? And I'm going to say, I don't know if this is going to be controversial, but this isn't a technology problem. Interoperability in other industries exists today. Interoperability in other countries is far more advanced than what we have in, I'm going to say, Canada and certain other countries. And in the U.S., even, they've mandated some certain things around, I'm going to talk about standards. It's a good time to talk about standards. So Mm -hmm. for interoperability to happen... Uh, there's a few different things. So you have to actually put in the ability for the systems to talk to each other. So how are they going to communicate? Is it sending a message or is it through like an API, but they have to agree on how they're going to talk to each other. And then they also have to agree on what that data is going to look like. So if I send you a bunch of text and it's in a certain line in a file, like how are you supposed to know that's your patient last name or that's the diagnosis that I've given the patient? And what has happened, I think, especially here, is because we have so many different jurisdictions in Canada and they're all independently responsible for making their own choices, they have often made different choices about the things they want to use. And to further separate that, what you have is the EMR vendors, like the systems that are on the other side of this. So if you're going to send a message and say referral from like your family doctor to a cardiologist. Those might be two different vendors for those electronic medical record systems. So they don't automatically know what the other one wants from them, right? Like, how do you receive the message? What is the data in the message? Like, how can you tell? How can you agree? What's more than that, all the vendors tend to be for profit. They aren't always super collaborative, but they're looking to the government to tell them what to do. So the government doesn't always have their mind made up. So I've I've seen now, I'm going to say three or four different projects and standards along the line of things like e-referrals and electronic consult and electronic prescribing in just even BC, but also separate standards and separate methods of communication across Canada. So it's just like this hodgepodge. Mm -hmm. And the US came in and they smacked everybody and they're like, you're going to use FIRE, which is Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources, which is an international, like totally independent standard that they've adopted. And what's happening now is we're seeing Canada shift in that direction, both at the top level, not as a mandate, but just as best practice, but also collaboratively, the province is starting to get together and say, why can't we figure this out? Mm-hmm. And they're moving in that direction. But it really is just because the ecosystem is so incredibly fragmented and siloed and the players want different things and some of the players don't want to talk to each other they want the government to tell them what to do 
then the government doesn't know what it wants to do. And then you'll get a new government and that government wants to do something different. So it's just been such a challenge. Like it's, it's not technology. It is people and it is process and it is policy. But I do feel like we're starting to finally, for the first time, really obviously for the first time, I feel like we're there. We have some good yeah. plans, not just in BC, but I've seen the other provinces really aggressively starting to move in those same directions. And together, collaboration. So how do you solve this then? Like, we are trying to standardize this process. What do you currently see? Because you're in it right now. How do you solve that? And what are the things that you're seeing right now? So I'm going to say from my perspective in the role I'm currently in, and I'm going to say also to some extent through the HIMSS hat, I do think fire is the right direction to go. I think it absolutely is. I think it took a long time for the community to come together and first build that standard, right? Because it was international. And everybody has different needs. And just like in Canada, sometimes everyone's a special snowflake. And what about my edge case over here that I want supported? So they got it out. The U.S. has adopted it. It's got quite a bit of use internationally. There was a lot of talk for a long time about whether or not fire was the right direction to move. Because when you look at these major systems that are involved in health, and I'm talking like public sector, like hospital systems, things like pharmaceutical registries that are run by the government, like the big, stodgy, ancient, uh, provincial or government-run, really critical healthcare systems, it takes so long to make changes on that, that you might be looking at a three to five-year project. So people mm. are really gun-shy to make a commitment on what that is, unless they're 100% sure they're going the right direction. So what they don't want is to put in three to five years worth of work and they're like, oh, actually, that wasn't the standard people went with. You're now in a completely different direction. Do another three to five years worth of work. It's not, not a good use of time, not a good use of taxpayer money, et cetera. There was some debate about whether they should be going with fire. I don't think anybody's mm-hmm. having that debate anymore mm-hmm. from my perspective. People mm-hmm. are on board. The U.S. is using it. It's become really prevalent in Canada. If you talk to a lot of the vendors, I don't want to put words in their mouth from the conversations I've had with friends at vendors in product management and in executive leadership, they're on board, right? Everybody's using Mm -hmm. fire. The vendors are cross province. They're sometimes international. Like this makes sense. It makes sense to have a standard that everyone is using. And we finally got everybody to cross the fence. So now we just have to implement Mm. at that point. So honestly, implementation, once everybody's on the same page and you have the buy-in from the people you need in terms of funding and resourcing, that's I mean, this beef is like it's the easy part. It's still incredibly complicated to do it well, but compared to getting to where we are today, I think now we have the easy part. How long do you think it'll take until we actually see it happening? Oh boy, I think it's going to start coming in chunks, and mm-hmm. I'm just going to say for Canada, so it's happening now. In the U.S., yeah. has done this. The major, let's say, vendors that work within the health system have right? They have met interoperability standards that are fire-based that the government has set out for them. I think most, if not all of the province provinces in Canada are moving towards that now. They're moving towards it today. I think mm. it will, I'm going to be generous and say three to five years, and you're going to yeah. see some things adopted quicker than others because you mm-hmm. have different levels. So you have the provincial systems and potentially like national systems, and those have a central body of control and they're going and everybody's going with them that's on that system. It's just happening. But then you also mm-hmm. have things like 
individual hospitals or individual health authorities or public health units that have their own technology and they have their own plans and resource constraints. And then you have things like the private sector vendors who honestly have been pretty progressive about adopting things quickly when they see which way the health system is moving because it's their core business. Mm-hmm. Um, and they face less constraints and less delays of I'm gonna say that political nature of securing funding through elaborate processes from the government. So you'll see a lot of things faster depending on who's delivering them. Stuff even because everyone's starting on it realistically over about the last year. Some things will probably start being delivered within the next year. I'm going to say prioritized workflows, depending on what you're seeing. So in BC, we're really pushing specifically getting electronic referrals out the door, Mm -hmm. quickly followed by a number of other things. One of the projects I've been working on, uh, there's, I think the UK coined the term axe the facts. And axe the facts is basically, why do we still use faxes in healthcare? We don't use faxes anywhere. It's ridiculous. And the impact of the fact that we're still using faxes, and I'm going to give an example from a project that I've worked with who I won't name, but they are involved with processing, say it's requests related to prescription approvals. And what happens is somebody fills out a paper form or they fill out a PDF in their electronic medical record system. So that's just, it's a piece of paper. And then they fax or they e-fax it over to that business owner. And then Mm -hmm. somebody has to take that piece of paper and then type everything in off the piece of paper. And then half the time they look at it and they're like, oh, the doctor didn't answer all the questions. Shoot. And they fire it back over to the doctor to answer all the questions. And then sometimes that happens again. So they had a really high rejection rate. And then once they've typed it into their receiving system, then they can process it in their receiving system. And then someone has to then take that decision and send like a fax back to the doctor. So they had, um, I'm going to say sometimes like well over two to three months of processing time on some of those requests between, especially with the rejections, all those delays. So when we turn that into an electronic workflow, what happens is first, when you hit the send button, you can check and be like, did the doctor fill out all the fields or not? So you can take that rejection rate, like practically down to zero right away, right? Doesn't get out the door. Like you just say, hey, you need to fix this and they fix it and then they send it. Um, second, nobody has to pick it up off the fax and type it in, right? It's automatically mm-hmm. in their system. And then that gives us the ability to do what's called auto adjudication, which means the receiving system for a lot of these types of requests can just look at it and say, yep, looks good. This patient can have this medication funded. Here you go. So about 40% of the time after that digital transformation, they were able to actually instantly let patients know yeah, your medication is funded or this medication isn't funded, like here's our next step, which is a massive improvement like for the physicians, for that business owner, for those patients, like not to have to wait literally months to hear back about when they can do this. So when we say acts the facts, it's not just because, oh, it's annoying and it's bad for the environment, but it is annoying and bad for the environment. It's because of this massive improvement to timelines and to patient care. Um, So a lot of those initiatives are getting prioritized. Not just Mm -hmm. electronic forms, but also electronic referrals, electronic consult. And the other one that I say fondly, I've been getting yelled at by doctors for over a decade about for a good 14 years is electronic prescribing, which Mm -hmm. has all the same benefits, which is instantly to whatever pharmacy you want. They can track it. It tracks any provincial systems. And there are many jurisdictions now in Canada that are already up and running with that or are, I think anybody who's not is in the middle of getting it 
up and running. So you'll see a lot of that Mm. stuff coming first. There have been a lot of train tracks laid down to make this possible already. So when I say, oh, it's going to move quickly and everybody's saying, why didn't we just do it sooner? The answer is in order to enable all of those things that we're now able to pick up and run with, we did have to have agreement on standards. Like I said, it tends to be fire now, but other things. So like, how do you code your drugs so that you know what drug it is when it comes into the system? Like, how do you read that? How do we agree on that? And things like lab tests and just getting everybody on the electronic systems that they need to be able to do that. So things like converting hospitals and physician offices to have EMR instead of paper records. So now that everybody's more or less like EMR adoption is extremely high at this point. Now that everybody's on board, now we can have nice things. Two comments. Number one, love the facts problem. So even in Australia, it just, it really boggles my mind that to even send information, I can't email them. I have to fax them. I'm already there in front of the hospital. No, you need to fax them. And this is a problem that is experienced globally. So my listeners, they're from Australia, Indonesia, some in China and Peru too. So that's really interesting. So it's curious to hear like how the listeners can relate to this too. But yeah, facts problem, huge everywhere. Yeah. Second comment though, read the prescription. What I've read is a lot of people are really nervous about sharing their data. With hospitals, fine. Okay, they're like, yeah, okay, it does help me if I move from hospital A to hospital B, from a GP to a specialist, that would really help solve this convenience problem. But then when it moves to the prescription pharmaceutical companies, they're a bit wary. Oh, but what if I'm I'm going to be targeted at certain ads? These information is really private to me. I don't want other companies to know. Take it even step further. Now, a lot of tech companies out there with AI and machine learning, they're trying to work with pharmaceutical companies to work on aggregate data to provide better recommendations to help solve these diagnoses and misdiagnoses and all these things. But there's a lot of data security problem here. So I want to go into that a little bit more. How do you think we can benefit from a more connected system, but also remain data secure? Yes. So that that's a huge question. It's a really important question. I'm glad you asked it. First, I might just address what's happening now with this. Traditionally, we've always had a lot of problem with say, legal and regulatory standards keeping up with technology. AI is one piece where it's like that needs to make a lot of progress. But when we're looking at people's right to protect their data or companies' ability to use that data, I think it just really depends on where the data is first, where the data is going for you to feel immediately more at ease. Okay, so that's a really important question. Privacy and security is really paramount to being secure in the health system. It is one of the reasons sometimes things move slower here, which is good and necessary. That is a great reason to slow down to make sure we're doing it right. Even so, legal and regulatory often lag behind the progress of technology. Like technologies Mm -hmm. move so quickly that things they couldn't have even ever pictured, like AI is a big one right now, is just out there and it's happening. And the what's in place on the books just doesn't cover the reality of what's happening now. Um, And I'll say that there are some solid data protections in most, if not all jurisdictions in place already. So when we look at a connected health system versus the current state, like a lot of the difference is like right now that paper is still bouncing around to all of those same places, but somebody's just typing it into a system as opposed to the information moving through automatically. The people who would have access to things like a provincial prescribing registry would be 
physicians who are prescribing and pharmacists. So it wouldn't be mm-hmm. someone like a pharmaceutical company. Where things get maybe a little more gray is how companies, big companies that are putting out medical software that are used by a lot of physicians or hospitals, can they use data? Who do they have to ask permission to use that data? Is it you or is it your physician? Mm -hmm. Um, Like Who owns which pieces of data? And I think for the most part, from a legal perspective, either places have regulations that say the patient has to consent, fully consent to the use of data, or in some cases, it has to be fully anonymized if a vendor is going to use it. You know, that data can be used and forwarded, but you are not identifiable from mm. the data. So there's no way that anyone's going to get that and target you with pop-ups. When right. I say no way, what I'll say is so far and as written, but it is something that I think we aggressively need to stay on top of because the second there's a loophole, there's going to be a company coming in and trying to figure out how to use that loophole, right? Like Mm data is incredibly valuable to advertisers. They love it. They want more of it. So like, how do we make sure people are protected? Yeah. And I think also data, what we have now, it's so powerful. So like, for example, there's more sensors and touch points, for example, like Apple watches, right? Now you get more heart rate information. There is this other device that you can put on your chest as well for to detect actually any forms of abnormalities in your heart rate. So there are all these additional sensor and data to really actually help these companies to provide um, information actually helps us too. So I think it can be really powerful but if done correctly. Yeah. Right. And I think honestly, the biggest gotcha that people need to look out for, and this is like the same thing that we say about like Facebook, right? There's so many offerings that are going to come out where it's, here's a device for exercise. I'm going to track your pulse. Here's this app so that you can track your mood journal. And every time people download those, be really careful about the terms of approval. Because that's, Mm. I think, the biggest gap. If people just tick the box and they're like, yeah, I agree, fine, give me the app. And that's, we can use your data, we can sell your data, we can market you other products. That's where it's going to be potentially legal for people to do that. It's when people want the service and they don't take the time to understand the terms that they're signing up for and whether they're okay with that. Again, Mm. that's another thing that the government's going to need to stay on top of. But just protect yourself as well, especially if you're using things from, I'm going to say, that might be like made in other countries sometimes that Mm -hmm. have different legal restrictions about things like privacy than in Canada. Read the terms of service when you sign up for things where you're going to enter sensitive private health information or you might get those pop-up ads. Yeah. Yeah, I am one of those who just accept. I'm like, there's so much to read, but I couldn't agree more. There's actually this case, again, on Reddit, all of my information from Reddit, a very credible source of information. There was this person who like somehow got hacked through their sleep um, app. So it's an app that tracks your sleeping patterns at night, and it can can provide you really interesting information. This is your deep sleep, blah, 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 which actually through research shows that it's not very accurate. But he got hacked through that And it was very interesting just how much like his Gmail, everything. So everything was all connected and he had one password for all of his accounts and everything just got, uh, yeah, violated. It it was a very interesting story. Yeah. So completely agree with you. Be careful. Yeah. And just maybe to speak to that a bit, like who did this app that you're downloading? (laughs) I don't want to be like vet every single app developer that you download Mm. something from, but a large company that does health 
apps, like that is their business, they're well-funded, et cetera, is far more likely to be aware and have a healthy fear of the repercussions of a data breach because they mm-hmm. are significant. Like the government does not play around with data breaches generally. Mm-hmm. They're going to spend the time and effort. Like if they're in the US, they're going to be all about full understanding compliance with HIPAA. And then the same with the Canadian regulations. People are going to be really careful if that's their yeah. company. If this is somebody built an app off the side of their desk and they've never worked in health before, you are going to be a lot more potentially at risk from that. And some people are going to be great about it, but it's just a bit, maybe understand that it can be riskier with smaller, newer to health app developers. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, there's, there's so much to learn about how to do things properly, both with policy, but also with technology from a privacy and security side. Mm-hmm. It is a steep learning curve. And if people don't take the time to do that, and honestly, it could be really expensive from a company perspective mm-hmm. to do it right uh, mm-hmm. in terms of how you're going to host and provide access to that data, et cetera. Definitely a higher bar if someone's like a solo practitioner sort of a thing. Built. I agree. Now I want to go into sort of just tech and innovation in healthcare as a whole. And I'm just really curious to hear what you think, actually. So there's a lot of new innovations, new technologies happening, like Digital Twin, for example, which is, you know, where I think neurosurgeons, they they create this digital twin of a brain and they can learn and patients can try and experiment with the 3D model. There's AI, obviously, helping doctors prescribe better medications. There's a lot of things happening right here. What are some of the innovations that you see that is worth mentioning? There's tons of stuff constantly, everything, Mm -hmm. all of the time. AI is the one that I know is very hot right now that everybody and their dog is talking about constantly. Mm -hmm. Um, And AI has been around for a while in healthcare, but because of, I'm going to say the advancements in AI recently, people are really starting to take a closer look at what it can be capable of and who's already out there on the market and what it's doing. And I think it has an an amazing amount of potential um, Mm -hmm. in so many different use cases, not just like clinical outcomes, but also things like I was mentioning for health insurance companies in really identifying things like risk factors or how to optimize cost savings. There's also the potential for that to go wrong. And it has gone wrong in terms of some of the struggles, I'm going to say that happened with Babylon in the UK around they had a lot of criticism from a doctor. Um, online on Twitter, actually. And the doctor was like, I don't understand how you're getting these outcomes. I don't like it. Can you show me how you're getting these outcomes? I don't think this is right. And they tore him down on Twitter. They basically Mm. just roasted him. And eventually Mm. the UK government came back and they're like, oh, actually, so he raised this to us and he was right. And we're also very nervous about what you're doing. And actually now we're going to come and put regulation in because we're not cool with it. Mm -hmm. Um, That's another case of we just need to be able to keep up with it. Mm -hmm. The other piece of that being algorithm bias is something where AI is very sexy. Let's put AI everywhere. There's really a foundational piece about how do we do things like machine learning in a way that we're sure we're feeding in the right data to train it Mm -hmm. to do the right thing. And we're not going to see issues like we have algorithms that are coming out with the wrong outcomes for underrepresented groups. So saying that different genders or ethnicities are or at, are not at risk of something, and we're taking that as gospel, but we never fed them in data to help them understand anything other than often white men, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that's just one example. But 
that is something that needs to keep right up. And Chicago Booth, if anyone's interested, has done some awesome work on algorithm bias in healthcare. They have a playbook. I highly recommend it if that's something you're interested in. Or if you work on a technical team in healthcare, help educate yourself for how to be a good consumer of these services. Other than that, a million things like where should we focus? Anything, yeah, there is so much. Yeah, anything consumer facing, consumer access to their own data is always a really hot topic. I think we're getting better services there than we traditionally have. And especially as we ramp up interoperability, which is a requirement, right? Because to access your data, you have to be able to get at that data. Because I think right now what we've seen is a lot of times people are recording their own data off devices and then taking it to their doctor and their doctors, what do I do with this? Mm. Thanks. Thanks for that. Mm -hmm. And hopefully this starts to become more of a two-way conversation. It, it is. We're seeing e not even just in private, but more private offering more services like that, but also public sector starting to offer more of that open access. So I think hopefully, I'm going to call this an innovation. This isn't a technology innovation. Hopefully we're going to see more communication and more sort of active collaboration between care teams and provider, patients in their care circles. Right. Ooh, could, um, could you elaborate on that? Yeah. So there are some really great patient advocates out there and I'm going to say connected patients. And often technology is great, but one of the underlying pieces is we, it doesn't matter if we have the technology, if we have this very one-way relationship where patients don't feel they're being engaged, they don't feel they're being listened to or heard or understood. They have concerns and the physician is just, that's great. I don't have time for this. So that also goes, I'm going to say, to planning technology projects, things like co-design. What you'll see, and this is across all technology, but I feel like healthcare has been especially resistant. It used to be that you'd stick a bunch of developers in a room and they would create a thing and they would think it was really good and they would have some opinions on it and then they would release it and that's what you get. And that's often how you get things that have like absolute crap user experience and usability and they don't understand clinician workflows and they don't understand patient needs. Finally. Software's understood the concept of like user research and user experience for quite a long time, generically, but you're seeing more of it pop up in healthcare and you're starting to see more of it pop up even in like public sector. So in order to design something that's going to meet the needs of patients, we have to talk to patients. You can't, mm -hmm. oh, but I'm also a patient because like, I fully agree. We are all also patients. No, go talk to other people, get them on the phone, bring them in, make a prototype, let them play with it and tell you what they think. Listen to their stories. So really getting people to have empathy and not just listen to their users, but actually bring them in on the development and the design process. And the extension of that is having empathy in clinical care and really listening to patients. Because again, you can take all your measurements you want on a device. And if your doctors, I, I have two minutes with you and I don't want to hear what you think, that's a problem. And I know there are people pushing really hard in that area as well. And I think, I, I hope there's some progress being made that's going to become a more collaborative, open relationship. Because I know that's what patients want. So what mm -hmm. all of us want really in our clinical care. Mm -hmm. It sounds like design thinking, which is a lot of Very empathy, yep. reiteration, yeah. customer-centered, humor-centered. How can we solve this though? So I think a lot of the times we don't spend enough time on the problem and a lot of people focus yeah. a lot on the solution. How do you think we can better solve this problem of this co-creation? And Because it, it does take a lot of time 
and a lot of effort. And people say, I don't have time. I've built a solution already. Yeah, no, bang on. People want to move fast and they Mm -hmm. think they know what's best. That having been said, I feel like a lot of that is old guard, that people coming up in the industry now uh, do want to have at least an understanding of what patients and providers want. And I think there's a lot of advocacy being done. One of the things I've done with Doctors of BC is really pushing for physician engagement and systems involved for physicians. And you'll see a lot of those types of groups advocating and you'll see groups popping up working with like ministries and health authorities that are specifically to help projects get involved with patients. And we've even through hymns, like we've showcased recently, a lot of really great examples in BC of projects that have done this right when designing a technology system that patients are going to use, bringing in the patients from the beginning, getting their feedback and then listening to them and implementing changes along the way. So Mm. it is a hard sell. I think there's pushes that need to happen from both sides. I think patient advocates need to keep pushing. And I think we need to be advocates. Those of us in the industry, we need to be advocates in our careers with our teams, with our organizations and community groups like HIMSS, like healthcare experience design, really helping bring those people together and make more of a coordinated push and really normalize the discussion around this being a core part of the project. So doing engagement and then the potential for co-design and the value of human-centered design as part of these systems and these apps. Mm-hmm. Because private sector, yeah. they're like, is this going to improve our product? Is this going to make us money? Yes, it will. Mm-hmm. Cool. We're on board. So it's really the holdout in this is often going to be the public sector pieces, which are the pieces everybody gets to use and that they're just there and that's what you get. And there's right. There's no alternative because it's the system that's issued to everybody. So I'm glad that's trending in the right direction now. I hope. Mm -hmm. Now, leading towards the end of the podcast, I feel like I always touch on AI in every episode. I'm like, but it's just so hot. And it's like, everyone wants to know. What are some of the AI applications that you see now? So I know we spoke a little bit more about predicting, because AI is really good at understanding patterns. And so they're able to help predict maybe the best medication, diagnosis, all these things. Any application that you see that we could dive into? So it's mixed feelings on this. I think the easiest ones to get out the door in healthcare are going to be the ones that are not trying to diagnose a patient or not trying to recommend treatment. So if you look at things like we have a huge problem with physician burden right now, huge mm-hmm. problem. Doctors of BC's put out like a really good policy paper on this recently. And I personally talked to when I was working there and just in general, so many physicians where it's like they're overwhelmed. They're exhausted. They're working like 10 to 12 hours a day providing family care. And they're like, I'm at home. It's 10 or 11 at night. I'm checking my lab reports. Like I'm missing my daughter's soccer game. Like how am I supposed to do this? So I honestly think one of the fastest and easiest applications is almost going to be like, how can we expedite some of the non-clinical care pieces that are taking up so much time in their day? Things like how do we expedite taking and cleaning up clinical notes? How do we help maybe prioritize tasks for them? Like what doesn't need to be done by a human? What only needs to be reviewed afterwards by a human? There's a lot of, I'm going to say like being a doctor isn't just seeing patients. There's a lot of grunt work, which is what's Mm. frustrating to them. And some onus on us as well for making sure the interoperability is in place. But I think that's a fantastic 
application? How can we help speed things up for physicians in the other parts of their day, other than doing the diagnosis? I think there's going to be a ton of potential in those crunchier sections around things like prescribing the right medication, helping make a diagnosis. I think because of the regulatory and the safety factor, we just need to be really sure that those things are ready. Hence the issue with Babylon, which did triaging of symptoms, right? And the doctor was like, wait a minute, this isn't quite right. There's going to be so much impact, I think, when that gets to where it needs to be. And there's definitely people working in that space now, because if you can improve diagnosis or treatment, like it's a huge win. The other thing that people talk about quite a bit now is things like, can AI help radiologists? So if you're looking at a scan, is there a way the AI can help provide better information on that scan? Can AI make a first pass or a second check on that scan? Um, I don't think it's something where it's ever going to replace clinicians, but it definitely can help, hopefully, help them be more accurate and help them work faster and with less drag. That theme, but more in results review and triage as well. Two things. Like the first part, I I really appreciate that you mentioned the non-clinical repetitive tasks. 100%. Yeah. AI, once they start replacing these repetitive tasks, we can have the humans work on other things like the diagnosis and stuff like that. But my second point too is oftentimes a question I get all the time is, oh, I'm scared. Will AI replace me? Will AI fully replace humans? I think Yes, some jobs or repetitive tasks might be replaced by AI because AI is just more effective and more efficient in doing those things. But we should really be seeing it as how can AI enable me to provide better value? How can we use this AI tool to achieve better results? So what you've mentioned at the end of radiologist, 100%, we still have humans working there. But at the same time, we're using AI tools to just deliver the results better. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's the argument for all technology. Like we were talking about optimizing that system for e-forms, how people get faxes and then people just sit there and they type the forms into the system. So Mm. we don't need people doing that anymore. And it doesn't mean those people don't have jobs. It means that in a healthcare system that's under horrible pressure is understaffed. We can't get enough people. It means we can redeploy them to do work that is impactful in other areas. Mm. And same thing, like we don't have enough primary care, we don't have enough physicians, right? Mm -hmm. We have a labor shortage in healthcare. So the ability for us to use technology to remove some of these stupid things that they're doing that like a machine can do for them so that we can have people seeing more patients, spending more time with the patients they're seeing, supporting that workflow, paying more attention to what's going on with visits and clinical records and focusing on patient experience like, absolutely. I think it's a huge positive for able to move in that direction. Yeah. I want to focus on what you said about focusing on the patient experience. So I did another episode on purely on AI. And the one thing I ask is, where do humans come into play in this whole AI revolution? And a thing is, AI is really good at pattern recognition, repetitive tasks, all these things. But the things that humans are really good at is empathy and creativity. Yes. So my final question really is we see this shift in skills as in AI is replacing repetitive tasks. 
What do you think are the most valued or what do you think is the shift in skills now when it comes to human work, especially in healthcare, where we also use technology as well? Absolutely. So I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think healthcare is very personal. Like you're often seeing someone on the worst day of your life or just a really bad day and your people are stressed and they're often afraid or they're nervous and AI cannot fix that for people, right? People don't want to talk to a machine when they're feeling that way. They want to talk to a human. And I think, like I said, we have a huge healthcare shortage, especially for physicians, but 100% patients want more empathy in the healthcare process. They want to feel supported. They want to feel heard. They want to feel understood. They want their doctor to sit and listen to them. Um, They want someone to take the time to explain things and translate things. They don't want someone to throw a bunch of medical terms at them um, that they don't understand and they leave and they're like, oh my God, what did I just hear? How bad is this? What do I do next? And their head is spinning. They really want the human touch and, and the ability to translate from medical jargon. So AI might be able to help a little bit with that piece, almost in helping sometimes some physicians who maybe have less bedside manner be like, here's how maybe you can say that in a way that people know what you're talking about. But they're still going to want that delivered by a human. They're going to want that conversation with a human who is truly listening to them. And then we can use technology to then support like the discharge process to make sure they have access to all the information that they need in a way that is user-friendly, easy to understand, easy to access. But when they get a follow-up call or follow-up visit, like that's going to be with a human again. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much, Rachel, for such a great conversation. I learned a lot. It was a great conversation talking about healthcare. So thank you for joining us here on the show today. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. I'll stop the recording here. And that concludes this week's episode. You can reach out to the speakers on their LinkedIn. All the links are in the description. If you like what you hear, feel free to download the episode, follow, or leave a review. We'll be back next week exploring a new industry. I'm Jacintha. Be sure to tune in. And as always, thank you for listening.